P.S. I Love Hoffman is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. So, Kyle, we have Moneyball this week, a movie I'm very excited about. One of my I favorites. Know. One of your favorites. We always talk about it. We like using the, just the phrase moneyballing it. Yeah, so uh, a baseball film this week. Uh, what are some of your favorite baseball films? I mean, we grew up in such a great time with the '90s and like all the kids' baseball films. So obviously, I mean, you've, I mean, you've got so many to pick from. But The Sandlot, classic lines, definitely classic film. And then uh, I, I love Field of Dreams. You know, if if you build it, they will come. I, I don't know. I never consider that really a baseball film. I think it's I think it's a good film, but it's overrated as a baseball film because there's not a lot of baseball. You get James Earl Jones, so I'm 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 happy, and some Ray Liotta, some non Goodfellas Ray Liotta. But do do they play a game in that even? Yeah, like it's like the older teams, it's like the White Sox, and he plays like the real. They play like against each other, like throwing the ball around. But is it really? Yeah, and they go they go to a uh, I think a Cubs game. No, they go to a Cubs game because he goes to Boston. It, it's Ferris Bueller, uh, a baseball movie, because they go to a baseball game. No, but there's there is there's there's a good relationship. No, it's like let, let's it's, let's find a poet for an hour. <laughs> they may they uh, as this film kind of romanticizes baseball. I think Field of Dreams romanticizes it. So give me for love of the game. That's ah. a Kevin Costner baseball movie I like. Kelly Preston. Give me Kelly Preston exactly. <laughs> Bad News Bears. You a fan of that? Well, the Walter Matthau, not the Billy Bob Thornton. So both, yeah, both. One's ba- like they're both bad in different ways. Like it, Walter Matthau, one's a good film that's bad, uh, as in dated, I, or no, politi- but it's like politically yes, correct. but it's also like inappropriate <laughs> bad. Yeah, and Billy Bob Thornton one is just bad. But original Bad News Bears is a good film, just a little raunchy, but uh, for kids, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Little Big League or Rookie of the Year. What's your pick there? Oh, I love them. I love them both because I, I love Daniel Stern in uh, Rookie of the Year, but I'd have to go with Little Big League just because, like, that was always the fantasy. Like, all of a sudden, you know, you, you become the owner of a baseball team and then you make yourself manager and you're, like, on the road. And How does he become the owner of, of the Unfortunately, twins? his grandfather dies. <laughs> so it's not the dream, necessarily. Is, his, is he rich, then? Yeah. Either way, he was going to inherit the team. I guess one of the baseball films that I think is very underrated is Mr. Baseball, starring Tom Selleck. He goes to Japan. Hey, if you got Tom Selleck's mustache, I'm sold. But you know, how about Ed? We could do that for uh, Ed. No, movie. Monkey Club. So, yeah, crossover for the defunct Monkey Club. But <laughs> no, but this this test, to, in my opinion, is the best baseball film. And well, let me get some peanuts and cracker jacks, and we'll be on our way. Iggy Pop. Amen. Let it rock. I'm a fucking idiot. Red meat, we crave sustenance. I'm an artist. Hello, my name is Jimmy Cody. Why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. Tommy, that's a thing. Whoever she is, I'm gonna find her and I'm gonna hurt her. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish. <laughs> I'm always home. I'm on cool. This is a process of dehypnotization. Shut, 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 shut up! Hey, Hoff fans. Welcome to this week's edition of the PSI Love Hoffman podcast, our love letter to the remarkable career of the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'm Brian Rodriguez. And I'm Kyle Reinfried. 
We're always home, we're always uncool, and we're always ready to talk great movies. And today we have a movie that, again, one of my favorites, and uh, maybe not my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, but we do have one of our favorite guests, the godfather himself, Joey Lewandowski, Aww. joining us. Oh, hi. Hey, Joey. Hi. And I know you, you've been looking forward to talking about this film, as you've alluded For to. For quite some time. Yeah, when, well, I think we talked about it on my Boyfriend's Back episode, but I said when you guys wanted to do this podcast, I said I have to be on my Boyfriend's Back, because it was a movie I had not seen and wanted to see, and I wanted to see Moneyball, because it's a movie that I have not seen since theaters, but I love, and actually, interesting to no one, but timely, as in the Super Bowl was this past weekend... I saw this film in the Mall of America movie theater when I was in Minneapolis in 2010 to see my first Vikings game in Minnesota. So uh, a little bit timely connection there as the Super Bowl is being played there or was just played there this past weekend. So uh, weird, weird sort of question mark timing. I don't know. No, that's nice. Nice synergy there. I like it. Hmm. There's a other little synergy to this movie and uh, your life currently. This was originally supposed to be a Steve Soderbergh film. So I read that, yes. Cinemakers. This is, this is crazy. Oh, 100%. That he was supposed to do this and then he wanted to cast all the actual players. So here's so here's what we've learned on Cinemakers. Not to derail this too soon. Go listen to Cinemakers. Shout out Cinemakers. But Soderbergh loves casting. Yep. Soderbergh loves casting uh, people in movies that aren't really actors. Like he, you know, uses Channing Tatum a lot. Now that Channing Tatum is more of an actor, but you know, he came from a non-acting background. He used Gina Carano as the star of Haywire. He used Sasha Gray in The Girlfriend Experience. Uh, to cast an entire movie full of baseball players as actors would have been super cool and right up his alley. And he also cast Brad Pitt, which would have been, I think, his fifth maybe Soderbergh movie the Three Oceans movies he's briefly in Full Frontal and then would have been this and he also cast uh, Dimitri Martin in the Jonah Hill role and that's another yes. thing that we've noticed recently that Soderbergh taps into the uh, sort of the alt comedy scene to fill out his movies and those yeah, definitely in the informant but I was like even when he's not actually making a movie he can't help but be Soderbergh in his styles his picks and I think if I read it right <laughs> things just fell apart because he wanted to change the original script a little bit and the studio said no and they just shut the project down well yeah so this movie I'm really I was really excited to talk about because the, I love this book I read this book like and it Me too. I don't want to say I don't want to say it changed my life because I don't know if I'd be in a different place, but I feel like it ch- it changed the way I think about everything. We'll put it that way. Yeah. And w- and when when I found out they were making the movie, this is like the one film I followed every single like step in production. Really? With. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, and it. I know Brad Pitt read the book and was like, "Holy shit! I have to make this movie." He's the one who got Soderbergh involved. He's the one who just, like, he was really pushing. He's one of the producers. Um, when the Soderbergh thing fell through, yeah, it was a lot of that. The stu- It was the studio who just was not comfortable with uh, the script as it is. Because, again, it was all these real people, and they were going to splice in real, real, like, plays and real scenes. And it had almost like a... Not documentary feel, but almost because it was just like so freaking real. And Brad Pitt as Billy Bean, and the studio was like, "We're afraid this is going to make no money." They brought on <laughs> Bennett Miller, um, and and you know Brad Pitt was still there. It was it was right. supposedly not like a 
really shitty breakup. It was like, oh yeah, okay, we tried to do this and that's not gonna. Ma-. And this movie does not get made without Brad Pitt. Um, he real he like this is this is was his baby and uh, people around him kind of he he's still looking for like an Oscar role and he thought this was gonna be it. Well, he's um, really really good in this movie. Oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, he's he's no no pun intended. I mean, he's he's batting you know. Very well in this movie. It was a good batting average, three hundred. There you go. <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, like so, so bold in how little he knows about baseball. I love it. I just like to, Kyle. The the proper like pun it would have been if you talked about like some like advanced metric stat instead of batting average. But but still, I love it. I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm ex- I'm excited to dive into this one. I guess. But for those who haven't the home. Yes, a slide into home. <laughs> That's what I should have said. Um, this episode will be a grand slam. There we go. There you go. Baseball. <laughs> the ball thrown. Pitch. Yay. Okay. So, so Kyle, for those who haven't seen Moneyball, again, I don't know why you've been listening to this podcast, but tell tell our audience what Moneyball's about. All right. Let's see if I knock this one out of the park. Uh, with the <laughs> lowest salary constraint in baseball, Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland A's, is at a significant disadvantage. With the help of Peter Brand, uh, he begins to use t- statistical data to evaluate what might make a winning team and turn the conventions of baseball upside down. <laughs> okay. And I hope I that's the last time that we use Peter Brand's name because that's Paul DePodesta. We're not. I'm yes. not going to call him Peter Brand. Uh, don't know it's why. the character of Peter Brand though. He he asked. You're not honoring them that man because he asked his name not to be used. Ugh. He whatever. Not He's not even use. baseball anymore. He's on the Cleveland Browns front office. They are writing the ship slowly but surely, maybe. Uh, but no, I'm, he's Paul DePodesta. That's who it is. I don't. Yeah, care. he who was a consultant on the film. Yep. Um, do you, so. What what's everyone's? If you have, if you don't have, okay. But what's everyone's baseball allegiance? I was just gonna ask or? that. I was very curious because I know you are a diehard end all be all Mets fan. Oh, by the way, your hat is at my apartment. You left it here. <laughs> Well, uh, oh, so, okay. I mean, Kyle, what you might not know is that after Philip Seymour Hoffman as Art Howe uh, managed the A's, he then went to the Mets for two years. So Philip Seymour Hoffman, the yes. manager of the Mets from 03 to 04. Yes, Art Howe was Mets manager, so I got perspective there. Paul DePodesta recently worked for the Mets. Um, Sandy Alderson, current Mets GM, was Billy Bean's boss, who hired him originally with the A's as a scout. Um, a lot of a lot of connections to my team here, um, you know, and yeah, the Mets. The Mets are also ru- cheap. So did your t- did your team ruin the life of Billy Bean, or did it- yes, it, yeah, well, that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll go ahead. I'll be a very. I mean, it, it'll make all make sense. So I, I, my allegiance is to the New York Yankees, but I I'm a true American in the sense that is. Baseball is a pastime to me. It's not my favorite sport. I do love it. I this film kind of had like a rebirth in just like me enjoying the sport again and I look at it from its like romantic side in a way and and honestly it's a it was this movie but always I I love the first game of the season uh because Brian always posts some of the most beautiful like a, a manifesto in a way of his love. I try not to. I try not to be romantic about baseball. I try to get over it and forget about it. And baseball to me is like my father. 
diehard Mets fan growing up. He grew up, you know, blocks away from from Shea Stadium, and then gave it up right before I was born. Right before that team essentially won the World Series, because it was taking over his life way too much. And he always said, "Don't don't follow it. It'll just break your heart." And you know, and it does. But <laughs> once you give it up, that's when they're gonna win. I know. That's why I can't. But whatever. That's why I I say to everyone who I care about in my life. Keep me alive. Use <laughs> as much money, time, resources. I don't care if I have one one simple line on that little brain chart. If the Mets have not won a World Series, keep me alive. Because I am still alive because I'm waiting for it. I'm oh, born- I'll unplug it right before the final <laughs> bit of the game. <laughs> I was born in 1987, fans. The Mets last yeah. won in 1986. So I, 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 I'm, I'm suffering. So, so that, Joey, wh- that's my speech. Is, you're you're a Vikings fan as far as football goes. Sorry, uh, uh, but yeah, they've they've, wh- they've never won a Super Bowl. Not a year before I was born. Not ever. Never. 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 So that's not good. I'm a Yankee fan. Um, you're a so, Yankee fan. Okay. Yeah. So there's that. There was something I wanted to say. What did I want to say? Oh, okay. I'm a Yankee fan, but my boss uh, is the guy who wrote the. I mean, he's a he does a bunch of stuff, but he wrote the Let's Go Mets theme song in 86. What? So that is a little Like, bit Let's Go Mets Go? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Let's Go Mets Go. And he also directed the music video, too. So That is a cool music video. Joe Piscopo's in it, Kyle. Ooh, I love this to me, Joe Piss. <laughs> Joe Capo. Piss. Capo. <laughs> Joe Piss. <laughs> I can't even call him that. Anyway, but uh, yeah, okay. So, like, again, this, this is... Um, just sports movies in general, they get a bad rap. They're not too many good uh, baseball movies, they say. Uh, I mean, look, people have their opinions. What What are some other baseball movies you think are good or you like? Well, this is the first baseball film to be nominated for Best Picture since 1989, Field of Dreams. So there you go right there as far as the Academy recognition of baseball f- films. But baseball films tend to be the best sport films uh, no, or boxing. just the more the most. No, I was gonna mo- say boxing. Boxing. Definitely. Oh yeah, Bo- it's not, yeah I don't bo- even think like it's boxing. And then like, okay, so you know in the movie where Brad Pitt's like, there's the Yankees, there's everybody else's team, every other team in baseball. There's 50 yards of shit, and then there's us. Like that's basically <laughs> yeah. it's like boxing, every other team in every other sport, and then like there's such a gap between where boxing movies are generally on average and like everything else like baseball movies can be good football movies can be good basketball movies can be good shout out coach carter magic mics um (laughs) but like on average i i'm not like i love sports but i don't love sports movies because they're they they're too often they too often fall into cliche where it's either the team wins or the team loses and what's good about this movie why i think it works is because this team the 2002 oakland athletics did not win the World Series. You know, they've been very successful, but they have not won a meaningful game in any of our, you know, in the last 25 years, like since, you know, the early 90s. They have not mattered, really. And why this movie, I think, works as a movie is because it's like a character study of Billy Bean, but also an examination of what, in many ways, revolutionized baseball and all these things that Paul DePodesta is doing in this movie in terms of tracking pitch location and, you know finding value where there isn't value is stuff that like every team uses today. And so it's not as it's 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 not really a sports movie as much as it is like a movie around sports kind of. Oh well, yeah, exactly. And that's where I mean 
boxing movies are tend to be the better ones and more successful again because it's you get to focus on the i mean it, you know it's an individual sport so you get to focus on the individuals and then going back to how i was saying field of dreams yeah it's not a baseball movie it's a movie that has you know baseball just as far as like the love and then obviously that was a big part is this relationship between father and son and so i mean that's what this t- movie does well cuz like you said it's this team that doesn't end up winning and then you have this great character tragic character of billy bean yeah and and so just to get back on the book um this is a book i again like i said i read i loved um i probably i'm thinking of reading it again i've read it many times but i'm thinking of reading it again did you read and the books did you read the blind side so this is the first book i read and then i subsequently read the uh, not all of them um i never read liars poker but i've read uh the blind side yeah okay uh and uh what's it called the the big short also films uh, another brad pitt movie and shout out boy from material ryan gosling we're gonna get to that soon sometime this year i think that's a sort of a recent gosling so yeah i, yeah. Like, th- I like this movie much more than the big short i Is like this- both of them i think they're both- i like the big short i think they're both i think they're both similar in ways. I haven't seen The Big Short recently. I don't think I've seen it since theaters, so I don't remember it too well. I think they're similar in ways. But you, you guys, I don't think you guys mentioned yet that Bennett Miller returning from Capote, right? Oh, of course, yes. Uh, Bennett Miller. Uh, so this is the guy who got uh, PSH a statue. Um, that part of it... So, I, uh, Kyle, did you read um, his how Philip Seymour Hoffman was attached to this? I'm assuming it was through Bennett Miller when he switched, but maybe not. I didn't find any specific. I couldn't find anything either. Yeah, I'm not sure if he was on the original but, cast or. No, I, I would. I would say if anything, Bennett Miller brought, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman onto this. Obviously, it's it's not a big role. It's not an illustrious role, but he just brings that you know professionalism to it, and just is is a great. I mean just him and Brad Pitt, you know, butting heads is phenomenal in this film. Yeah, so the so the book pissed off a lot of people in baseball, a lot of old school baseball people, which obviously you see in the film. Yep. The the movie pissed off a lot of baseball people, but famously Art Howe was really pissed about how Philip Seymour Hoffman played him. Yeah, I've read read about that. <laughs> and Hoffman said, like in his interviews, that he's like, I wasn't trying to play Art Howe. I was trying to play the character who he was a sports fan himself. But I mean, who the no one really wants to see Art Howe, you know? Um, it, it's he he wanted to just play the character that was in the script, which I'm totally okay with. Uh, that was the book itself is great but it's not if it's it's kind of what you're saying joey it's 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 more of a book around baseball than a book about like a team you know that's what's crazy about both this book and the blind side it's like they both become fiction i mean this is based on true story but they're both fiction movies you're like they're not documentaries it's like how the hell do you adapt like the the way that like the left tackle revolutionized football or like the way that they found value in walks like how do you make that into a movie with like a gripping narrative but they work like it's it's weird but they both become good successful movies and like you know the blind side forever in my heart sandra bullock i love her and she's great in that movie too like you know i like this movie better i think it's a better movie but like they're both they both take these non-fiction really analytical looks at sport and then make them into something that actually has like emotional resonance yeah i mean which is 
I was so afraid that they were not going to be able to do that. I was so afraid we were going to get like some popcorn version of the A's. And they're able to do it. They're even able to work in the Bill James narrative in this film. It's not one of the major things. You don't see Bill James. Right. But they talk about it enough where you like get it. Even even at the end in like the, the how they say the Red Sox hire Bill James. It's, it's perfect. But I, I don't want to forget this. This is considered also the book that killed the Oakland A's yep. because suddenly everyone after Moneyball, like you said, Joey started doing this and the A's essentially have had to try to rewrite this again and again to limited success. They've made the playoffs again yeah, since in like t- 2012, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, the A's, the A's are one of a handful of teams in baseball that like, I mean, I think they're, they're more financially solvent and better. I mean, this is not at all what this podcast is about, but like, you know, you look at Florida, like Tampa and Miami, like they're two teams that like do not want to spend money, uh, that they are worse off than Oakland. And unlike NBA or NFL, where they have like, like, I think like a minimum, I think baseball is like, you don't have, there's no minimum. You don't have to spend money. And so, you know, teams don't spend money and just the owners get richer each year. Uh, So it's, it is this really sort of lopsided game, but as they prove here, like you can find value in the, the the Island of Misfit Toys, which I know Kyle's quoted a few (laughs) times, I think on this podcast. And definitely all the, like the, the entire point in baseball as the sport is just to get to the playoffs and then like there's such a crapshoot that like you're you you have no control over it like the team and what's interesting a little bit is that like this movie pays no attention to the legitimate all-stars that the a's had at that time like they had one of the best trios in major league baseball in the last probably 20 years in uh barry zito mark Mulder, and uh Tim Hudson, um, they had a yeah. budding superstar in Miguel Tejada at short, and like they're not in the movie, like they're around. To be fair, the of. book doesn't really talk about the right. starting rotation as much. That was a narrative that Michael Lewis actually said he took away because it helped the story. But Miguel Tejada is a little bit more mentioned in the book than he is in the film. You see him briefly a couple times because he said that like, he like hates walking, right? Like he wants to hit his way off the island or whatever. Like yeah, yeah, that, that's so. where the phrase comes. Like you know, you you don't you don't walk off the island. Talking about like Dominican Republic, right? But you but you like but j- just to just to wrap this up, but like you don't win 102 games or 20 in a row by just being this mismatched group of players like they were they were a good team they just ran into some bad luck and i think the 2001 if i if i remember right and i'm not just trying to rub this in your face brian but this was the year of the jeter flip right that got the out at home and that's what gave the yankees the game three win i think yeah yeah that's and that's one that's that's one of the inconsistencies of the film because like jeremy giambi was involved in that play but yeah but he's like they act like they just like get him in the film, but re- regardless, yeah, no, that was that year. That's like what led to, the, and that's more cited in the book too. Like literally, like the the flukiness of the flip play, and, right. and but it's still the big big bad Yankees. Oh my god, there's just so much in this film. I want. Uh, I, well, like they, I mean, they, they they went on to lose the World Series to the Diamondbacks in heartbreaking fashion, so they did not come out unscathed either. So. No, but fun, after fun. Af- after a bunch of World Series, especially the year before, <laughs> beating my Mets. So. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Five, five, champions, five championships, and then what, they lost to the Diamondbacks and the Marlins. Well, they they won four from 96, 2000, and then they won another one in 2009. Um, but oh, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, lost sorry, in yeah, uh, 90, or they lost in 01 to the Diamondbacks. They lost to the Marlins in 97. 
Uh, no, the Indians lost to the. No, 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 no they no, lost no. the Marlins in '03. No, they lost the Marlins. '03, '03, yeah, '03. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Indians uh, lost to the Marlins in '97. Um, but anyway, back back to Hoffman for a second, because something you were saying earlier, Brian, like he's not in the movie a lot, but he is this. It's hard. I don't know if he's important in this movie. I mean, the role of the manager is important in this, but like this is such a Billy Bean vehicle that Art Howe and Philip Seymour Hoffman as Art Howe is just like at his mercy, right? Like, he has no control, and the little control he has, running out Carlos Pena to first base every day, who would actually <laughs> want to be, like, a really good player, um, you know, he, tra- like, Billy Bean trades him away, and so, he's not important to this movie, but he's, like, this portrayal of, sort of, the steamroller of Billy Bean, right? Like, he's just, like, leaving victims in his wake to, like, yeah. have things be his way. He does a great job of showing, you know, that he's going to do what he thinks is best with the team that he's given, with the players that he's given. Because, you know, there's the whole thing that he wants more than just a one-year contract. And so he wants to make sure that, I mean, you know, that in that old way of that they're playing baseball, that he's going to use the players that he thinks, you know, that's the best first baseman that I have and not, you know, Hedeberg. Yeah, no, and then that was, I mean, baseball for, since the 1800s, you know, like, like, uh, the, at least until there was like a, uh, at least from when there was a GM manager split, you know, the GM gets the players, the managers gets, gets to do pretty much anything he wants to do with them on the field. Now I would say a lot of teams, including maybe controversially this opinion, but probably now both New York teams are with their new managers, probably more puppet managers where the GM is really kind of writing that lineup card rather than the manager, which is, you know, Billy Bean tries to do a couple times in this film. And it pisses off Art Howe. Like, and, and I get it. I even remember back then, before I read Moneyball, um, just wondering about the A's. Why aren't they re-signing their players? And oh, I, I wanted Art Howe to be the Mets GM. I mean, the Mets manager, because I was like, wow, look what he's doing with these team, like these, like this nobody lineup. After losing Giambi, after losing these players, he got the team to the playoffs again. So I mean, <laughs> and then of course Art Howe sucked. As Mets manager, and not not, well, yeah, I mean, not a surprise. Like, it's, I mean, Kyle, you can laugh, but like up until this point, you know, really, I think up until like Brian Cashman, like no GM was really known. I don't think, and like it, it was never their influence that really, like, I think Brian's right. Like you, you look at the manager, like how is he coaching these guys to like you know maximize their potential? But you know, aside from yeah, no, I get, I get that Cashman yeah. and then Billy Bean and then you know who they who the Red Sox wind up hiring instead of Billy Bean and Theo Epstein, like they're these sudden like these superstar GMs where they're like, oh, there's more to the team. And I think it's just, it's a way that like what they're doing in the front office changed the way that every team operates. But I also feel like how they're doing things changed the way that fans sort of saw how the operation was run. That they're like, oh, it's not just a coach, like an owner, and then the coach is the next tier down. Like there's this whole middle ground of like the GM and his team and his assistants and his scouts and everything. So... 
Um, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of things happening here. This it, it, this movie changes. I mean, this movie, duh. <laughs> the book changes baseball, but the A's change baseball. And just to just to put a cap on, I guess, the real story here before we kind of d- dive into scenes and stuff. Um, Billy Bean, for those who don't know, the like you said, they haven't won since. It reminds me so much, Joey. I know you're a fantasy guy. Um, the I, at least up until they made that ESPN. Uh, 30 for 30 on fantasy baseball, how like the main guy who created the first rotisserie league still as of like the, when they had that documentary in 2000, I don't know what was that year of all the 30 for thirties, whatever, sometime in the last decade, um, how the guy who invented fantasy baseball still had not won a single fantasy league (laughs) in his life. Which is, is scary, but but amazing, and I hope that is not Billy Bean's fate. I, I well, really hope that. I I don't know. I do want to say while we're on the topic of fantasy baseball, this year, because um, I was sort of not a closet A's fan, but I admire them because I think I think as a fan of baseball, you have to be like, look what they're doing with so little stuff. And I remember in fantasy this year, I had all five of their starting pitchers, and so there was a, a string when they win twenty in a row where I was like, oh, like I am just straight up killing it in fantasy. I don't remember if I won the championship that year, but I was like, this is amazing, because I just, you know, because three of them were good, and two of them were whoever they were, and I was like, wow, like, this is great. Like, I am so good at this. And then, you know, I don't think I won, but, you know, who knows? But I have won. <laughs> I have, unlike the guy who created it, I have won Fantasy Baseball Championship, so thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so, oh, Kyle, just, I know we've talked about it, but maybe, let, let's let's talk about this cast, right? Yeah. Uh, so we've got, as Billy Bean, Brad Pitt, uh, then in a small role, Robin Wright plays his ex-wife, Sharon, and then the fictional character of Peter Brand is played by Jonah Hill, and then Art Howe, obviously our main man, uh, Philip Singer Hoffman, then Scott Hatterberg, a budding star, Chris Pratt, and then uh, Casey Bean, uh, Billy Bean's daughter, uh, is played by Karis Dorsey. And then we have a little fun uh, cameo of uh, Spike Jones playing Robin Wright's uh, new husband. Yep. Yeah, he does and a really awesome. great job. Yeah, he does. So, ju- just, so this is like one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's better rated films. 94% Rotten Tomato for critics, 86 for audience. Um, I, yeah, again, I mean, I love this. I saw this in theaters. I... Just, I mean, I know we use the just the, you know, call, calling things, you know, saying money balling it all the time. It just, it, it, it just, it supersedes even baseball. It just makes on a thematic level. It's just a fantastic film. Yeah, a hundred percent. Again, it's a shame that there's not more Hoffman, but I think he, I think he does an awesome job. Yeah, this is the Brad Pitt show. Yes, this, uh, you know, certainly this move, this movie. Certainly. This is one of those films where it's like, I, I'm excited to talk about Moneyball, and I'm excited that Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it, but it's just, it just, he happens to be in, in one of my favorite movies. It's not so much because of him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it even, I love Scotty J, but I love Boogie Nights even without Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. You know, that's what that is. Did either of you watch the deleted scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman? So I was trying to, I couldn't find my, I found my Blu-ray and I did not, it, the disc was not in the freaking case. 
And I was so pissed off. And and you know what's even worse? The freaking bonus features disc was not in the case. So I was really upset about that. So so I, I did not... I saw the that scene recently, but not recently enough. Did you see it, Kyle? Uh, if I, I have not seen it recently, and if I have seen it, I do not recall. So the the scene is it's in the middle of their winning streak. I think they won seven in a row, and Billy Bean's walking through the clubhouse as he does, talking to players, saying, you know, trust your slider, you know, take more pitches, whatever, whatever. And then he goes into Art's office, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is getting dressed, getting ready for the game. He's got his pants down, sort of, a uh, very sort of vulnerable moment. And Billy Bean does what he does the entire game, and he or the entire movie, and he's just like, hey use the guys that I want you to do. Like, use Bradford tonight, because you're going to bring in Magnanti, and Magnanti's going to blow it. And then he's like, you know, he leaves or whatever, cut to the game, bring in Magnanti, gives up a home run, Billy Bean walks from some concourse somewhere into the dugout, Umpires on the umpires on the field screaming at him, uh, like you know, you know Billy. Only managers, only players in the dugout. He just ignores all them. Goes face to face with Philip Seymour Hoffman, and says, uh, "Those boos, therefore you drink up." Like just like saying, "You messed this up. They're booing you. I need you to man up and take this." Um, so it's a it's a really like it's probably like a six minute scene. Oh, there's also one other thing uh, I forgot that in the in the office before Billy walks out, as he's walking out, uh, Art House says to him, "I could have coached you up, you know," because there's this whole thread in the movie about how Billy Bean was like this five tool player who I guess mentally just couldn't cut it, like he just never became the player he was supposed to be. So Art House says, "I could have coached you up, you know," and Billy Bean says, "I don't think so." And Art says, "You think you were that bad a player, huh?" And Billy Bean says, yeah, that's what I meant. And, like, it's not clear if he's, like, you're a shitty manager or I was a bad player. Like, I could sort of go either way. But there's this real confrontation, this conflict there that I feel it's a really good example of in the scene. But even without that, just in the four or five scenes of Philip Seymour Hoffman's in this movie, you can get that. I don't think you need the scene, but it, it, it would have been nice for this podcast, at least, for it to be in there. Yeah, that's a shame that that part isn't in. I think the going onto the field and that whole stuff, that's like a little too much. And I mean, there's plenty of parts of this movie that uh, since, I mean, I definitely don't know, you know, the whole story or, you know, to even your guys' level of stuff. But I mean, what, like, you know, what happened in real life as far as these, you know, certain story beats in the film, you know, I mean, for instance, there even was extra scenes that, you know, they make Billy Bean this guy that in divorcee that's just kind of lonely and living by himself but in real life he was remarried and if you look in the film uh he is wearing a wedding ring but at the same time someone could be thinking he's still wearing the wedding ring that he shared with yeah uh, you know that's the stuff that's the stuff that's not in the book by the way like his like yeah so that's the stuff that you do have to make which i mean since we're i mean we're getting into like the film aspect versus just even the book stuff but that's where you get i mean you had steve zallian write the original and then aaron sorkin came on and aaron sorkin even said leaves leave steve's name on this i don't know how much more i can add to this but it is i mean you have a clever writer like aaron sorkin who you know worked on uh wrote charlie wilson's war what film we covered and then you look at him doing a movie like social network and i remember when that came out people were like wow he made coding interesting uh so i think that's you definitely can credit you know the writing uh to as far as making these you know statistical and mathematical moments in these films uh in in this film 
exciting and interesting. I think the film writing and the book writing, though. Uh, you didn't read the book, Kyle, right? Oh, no, I did not. Yeah, it, it's Michael Lewis has a way about uh, like turning stuff that like to the average person is pretty like Would boring. Be boring AF. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and where it's like really gripping, you're like, "Holy shit, this is awesome!" Um, no, I know. Like, yeah, we've talked about that before. And again, I mean, I, I had read, uh, you know, well, none of his books, but especially, I mean, seeing uh, the Blind Side and just thinking, I mean, us talking about it. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you thinking that he did a better job with this. The Blind Side just got a little too like hallmarky, you know, as far as its filmmaking. Well, the, the, I mean, the Blindside book is basically about how Lawrence Taylor was so dominant as an outside linebacker that he changed yeah. the offensive tackle position, and then they made that into a narrative movie. Like the, the book, I think, if I'm right, Brian, doesn't the book alternate between the Tui family or, or the the Collins family? The, no, the Tui family, right? The Tui yeah. Family, between them and like the actual football, so like there is like this narrative there, but to turn that at all into a movie is terrific and i know it's sort of you know the white savior thing the white guilt like there's a lot of problems <laughs> with that but um you know i think it's still well, a good movie yeah it's a good movie moneyball though is more like the film moneyball is more like the film the big short than it is like the blind side if that makes sense yes mm-hmm. yeah like it, it's Absolutely. it's they they went with because the big short is like way into that, obviously the whole th- theoretical stuff because there's no like sport involved. But it's it's Moneyball is more like it teeters that line, and the Blind Side used more of the narrative parts. The Blind Side film is is so much more of that, uh, like you said, the the family than the other stuff. It, they do go into it, but it's. It's it's hitting that part home a lot. But this film again, this film strikes a good though it's before both those, it strikes a good balance between the between the two. But you don't have uh, Margot Robbie in the bathtub explaining what is she explaining? <laughs> I even kind of forgot really complicated I, banking term. I wasn't paying attention to that part of it. <laughs> yeah. No, that movie takes it that I, th- though that's not like the Soderbergh vision, I feel like that's more of kind of what he was going for, if that makes sense. Uh, it seems like from everything I read, it was going to have like a lot of intercut things like that. Um, a lot of the things were going to be explained that way. But, I mean, who knows? We'll never see it. I'm happy with the product anyway, so whatever. Well, there's like this... I mean, I don't think... I don't know if you need it. Like, I also... I don't know... I'm trying to think of how Soderbergh would do this. And I think it would wind up... Like, this movie is great, but I think at times it all sort of gets a little schmaltzy. Like, it gets a little, like, you know, isn't baseball beautiful? Like, there's, you know, the the score is good, but it also sort of swells up once you're like, oh, like, look how wonderful this all is. And so I feel like that wouldn't have been in Soderbergh's version. It would have been, like, a dirtier version. But I think what works really, really well in this, that I think he, Soderbergh would have done too, is, like, there's that montage of... Billy Bean explaining to all the players, hey, this is how you buy into my system. You gotta walk more, we gotta get the starting pitcher to throw a hundred pitches through five innings, you gotta knock him out, go deep in the bullpen, you know, take more pitches. And like there's like that scene that's probably two or three minutes long where they're going back and forth between like, you know, two or three groups, and like it's just so well done. And it's like that's the explanation. Or like they have they cut to Jonah Hill saying, like, you know, when you're taking pitches here or when you're swinging the pitches here you're hitting 650 but when you're swinging the pitches here you're hitting 130 so like stop swinging there you know what i mean like it's all these little things that in a way explain the concepts without getting too complicated but still doing it within the narrative of the movie which i think works really well 
Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I think. Continue, Kyle. No, I was going to say that's that's what I think this film uh, does really well. And again, as someone that doesn't follow baseball, you know, as close as you guys, that's what it. That's I mean, that's what it, that's what it does for your average person that doesn't follow baseball that much. It just made sense to me. The Big Short. I mean, also it is covering a much more complicated uh, system of economics and you know the you know the housing collapse and everything like that, but. The, this just made baseball, you know, make sense, and what they what they were doing since it was such a big thing of them trying to change the game. Yeah, I also like uh, how it layers um, exactly what you guys are saying, but like how we have the Paul D. Podesto, Peter Brandt scenes, but it's it's layered with something else. Like Billy Bean will have an intense conversation, and we're thinking about something else, and he'll walk into the room, and Peter Brandt will throw out something to him or like like the whole line like Kevin Euclid is the Greek god of walks kind of things. I like how it's not like splitting it. It's like we're we're digesting this world through the narrative and I think it just succeeds so well at that. Cuz I don't remember too much of the book, but like Euclid, it feels like Euclid is mentioned on every page of that goddamn book. Like <laughs> everyone, like the whole front office and also by extension um uh oh god, what's his name? The guy who wrote the book. Michael Lewis. Uh, it feels like the whole front office and Michael Lewis, by extension, love Kevin Euclid, and I feel like he's just mentioned forever. And it feels like in the book, from what I recall, every day, maybe, Billy Bean called the Red Sox, like, hey, you want to trade that guy? And they're like, no. Uh, so, like, <laughs> I think that like that's in the movie as, like, a nod to the people who read the book, like, hey, we know that he's a big character who's not on the A's. Here's why people care. Yeah, yeah. No, and I guess, I guess, look, this is... I mean, Kyle, I know you're in the same boat. There are not too many uh, books we read that, that became movies later. Um, this is, like I said, one of the first, or at least most intense for me as like an adult. So when I liked these little nods, I felt like finally like the Harry Potter fan who <laughs> who read Harry Potter before seeing those films. You know, like I was like, oh, that's that, ah, they mentioned Euclid. You know, it made me happy. Yeah, I mean, so. You have since that you know they did a good job you know with adapting it from the book, but then you just have this great like I mean a real life person that has this kind of again tra- like tragic story, and I love the moment I mean because it just brings it to like a very much like a big point that you start like questioning almost like Billy's actions when the head scout. Uh, is talking to him and then eventually, you know, gets gets fired, but he's just like, oh, I see what you're doing. Like, you have it, you're just mad about everything that's happened in your life and, you know, I mean, you're just, you're trying to, corru- you know, almost like, you know, like, like, like Billy Bean is the Joker that just wants to see it all go into chaos or something like that. But, that, I mean, that's, you know, from an outside perspective, that's what is also interesting to me in this character. Yeah, that 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 that's awesome because I you know I was curious. I know you liked it too, but I don't think we ever even even around that time I don't think we ever did a real deep dive into this film. So it's it's I'm happy to hear that because I know you're not someone who read the book. And and oh I, no, yeah, you you guys are talking about stuff here that I'm just like you know that's why I'm kind of silent. I'm just like nodding my head here. I'm like oh I I, I like I get what you guys are saying, but it's not not that it's not stuff I'm not interested in, but it's definitely stuff that I'm not knowledgeable. Because I think <laughs> so. I think what I think what the movie does well is it takes the concept of Moneyball but simplifies it. Because I think like on a broader scale. Moneyball is just not about buying walks and on-base percentage. It's really 
finding value in the things that other teams don't find value in. So, like, at this point in time, people were worried about home runs and RBIs and batting average. They're like, hey, if this guy's got an on-base percentage of over 400, like, he's going to get on base, you know, more than, you know, almost half the time. Let's get him out there. Like, we'll teach him how to play first base. Like, that doesn't matter. And, like, doing things where you don't bunt the ball, you don't try to steal bases, you don't give up easy outs. and It's like these things, these sort of deficiencies. And I think in the book, because it's more numbers-based, because Michael Lewis is a numbers guy, it dives much deeper, from what I recall, into sort of the math of it all. But here, that's all depicted in like, hey, we just need high guys with high on-base percentage. Just take more pitches, walk more, we're going to win. And at its core, yes, that's right, but like the book, it's so much more, which obviously it has to be because this is a, you know, a professional sport where you have 30 of like the the smartest guys in the in the universe as GMs, but it it works in the way that like you're you're using this as a, an example of the bigger picture, but also able to make a movie for people who don't really care about baseball or know anything about the A's or about like what even an on-base percentage is. Yeah, because I think the simplest, simplest concept that I even can boggle the casual baseball fan's mind that it wasn't accepted of how it's described better in the book, but how like you would ground for a hard ground out, people wouldn't clap, but like a soft liner that was a hit, people would you know cheer. So like the fact that a walk and a single are essentially the same thing, but at the time were not considered as such. Like at least to, uh, you know, like the Joe Morgans no, no, of the world. Yeah. And I think coming that's from the coming from that old man's perspective, and that I guess that's one thing that it kind of still ties into the Steve Soderbergh. They had mostly most of the, like the scouts around the table were actual real life scouts. Um, there were a few actors around that table, but th- I mean, just again from them talking about, oh, he's a good looking guy. Oh, he's got a he's got an ugly girlfriend. You know what that means? And it's just <laughs> this world that. It, it, Again, it's showing us this side, or at least this side of baseball that I knew nothing about. But ultimately, again, this and why this movie is a great movie, and I'm going to bring it back to again talking about boxing films. It's Rocky. It's an underdog story. They don't. He doesn't win in the end. He doesn't win that season. Spoilers and then for we Rocky. see Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And then he. And then he see. And then he sees. And then we see at the end, he not only doesn't win that season, but then he's offered to be, he's going to be, could, could become the highest paid GM of all time with what, $12.5 million yep. offered to him yep. by the Red Sox? Oh, and just one last, this is my, since I'm like the trivia guy, this is my one last little fun trivia. The guy that plays the Red Sox owner, he is the same actor that uh, plays uh, the grown up Smalls yep. in. Uh, the Sandlot. Yeah. Oh wow! Which is, re- which is really fun. Because, you know, <laughs> then he's then he's the announcer for what the Dodgers at the end of that film. Yeah. Um. So that's just like a fun. And I he's just I I love that little exchange between them at the end. That's just like pure Sorkin to me. Him, you know, like asking him about like, oh, what should I get for my secretary? She usually buys all this. Yeah, that felt very just, Sorkin. Bi- yeah, Billy is just. I love how no nonsense Billy is. Just like again around the table with his scouts and just saying like, "Nope, that's not. We're not looking for another Giambi like that." It, Brad Pitt just like. I mean, he makes it. He bu- wraps it up in a box and he sells it. To me. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, what does he say? He says, 
if we try to play like the if we try to play like the Yankees in here, we will lose to the Yankees out there. Like it's yeah. obvious and it's Perfect. easy that if you have twenty million dollars a year to give to Jason Giambi, who will hit you forty home runs and drive in one hundred and twenty runs, you go do that. Like if you have the money to spend, you go spend it. And that's also why not had anything to do with this movie, but why I became so disinterested with the Yankees for so long is because they were just making these like obvious acquisitions that did win them a World Series, but was like, there's no, there's nothing to root for. Like, you're just buying the best players, which is why now, in real life, in 2016, 2017, and heading into the 2018 season, where they actually have, again, just like in the mid-90s, this core of young guys that, you know, whether they drafted them or traded for them before they played, like, their major league experience is entirely with the Yankees, and, like, it's exciting, as opposed to, oh, we're going to go sign Giambi, we're going to go sign A-Rod, we're going to go sign Teixeira, we're going to go sign Johnny Damon after he breaks our hearts in 04. Like, it's just, it's boring after a while, and, like, that's why this story is so exciting, and it is the Rocky factor, it's like, these guys don't have money. They could have money, but their owner, when they call Steve Schott, he's like, I'm not going to give you 200 grand. Like, they could have money. They just, the owner's like, no, I'm not going to give you any more money. Like, do make do with your 40 million. And they do. And it's great. And it, 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 it really happened. Yeah. And that, that's, but that's what, like, kind of sucks not being a Yankee fan now. Because the Yankee fans, the Yankees now have a huge analytics department and presence. And they have the money. So they'll probably win for the next 40 years. But but you're absolutely right. That Yankee era, I, I just speaking from, like, again, I, like I said, I'm not a Yankee fan. But that Yankee era... Yeah, tell us how you really feel about the Yankees. No, no. That Yankee... I'm not it's like a hater-hater. But that Yankee era, it was easy to hate the Yankees. Because they literally were what people said. They yeah. would just buy your players. And yeah, they you know they got a World Series. Out of, I'm not talking again about like the, the 96 to 2001 <laughs> thing. I'm no, talking no, about it's, like... It's the, oh, it's, it's the after the Red Sox. It's after the Diamondbacks beat them in the World Series. It's yeah. after yeah. the Marlins beat them it's in the World Series. It's when they were Series. signing like Randy Johnson. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Brown. Brown. Yeah. Yep. Carl Favano. Um, the worst like... rotation in history. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there was a point where they lost two World Series in three years. They saw their arch rivals win a World Series series they see the arch they, they see the arch rivals win another world series four years later and they like went on tilt like they're just like we need to spend more money and just get the big guys and then you know th- 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 terrible to say but like sort of luckily for yankee fans george steinbrenner died and like his more rational sons took over and they're like hey we're going to do things a better way and it took years i mean like they're still paying i think a rod but if they're finally sort of back to what they should be, which is the Oakland A's with money, kind of. <laughs> yeah, and again, like every the Tony Larusas of the world are gone. Every team is like doing this now to an extent, and it's about finding that edge. It's the, and that's what all Michael Lewis books seem to be about, um, just a particular industry or sport and finding that edge. And Philip Seymour Hoffman in this film represents. Like in a lot of Michael Lewis things, and that's why I don't think Art Howe was 100% happy with it because he's he, yes he's Art Howe, but he also represents on a greater scale the resistance to that change because it is the old school versus the new, and Art Howe fits in with those guys in the scouting room. That it's it's basically Billy Bean and Paul D. Podesta versus the world, and they have I mean they say in this movie like. You know, you get the like. Well, he says to him, "Like it's you and me. It's yeah. you and me." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's 
poetic and beautiful. Um, so he has so many great lines in this movie. Just, I mean, I mean, again, he just—it's just—and it, it's smart writing. I don't know if this is a line that's exactly from the book, but I'm sure it is. It just has, but just—I mean, you know—they're card counters at the blackjack table. I mean, that's just again, just a what—it's a perfect way for someone that doesn't like follow baseball to understand what they're trying to do here, what their what his mission is. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned some of the, those Hoffman scenes. Did you want to play any? Is it- Let's go ahead and just the first time we really uh, we get to hear Art speak to Billy and uh, you know what he's what he thinks he's trying to do with this season. I can't manage this team under a one-year contract. Well, sure you can. No, I can't. Okay. I got to put a team on the field. After that, I'll take a good long look at your contract. How about you deal with the manager's contract and then put a team on the field? Art, at this moment, if the ground is hit the first, nobody's going to be there to stop it from rolling. It's not easy doing what I do under the cloud of a one-year contract. Okay, I understand that. I've been there. I know. I know you have. And a one-year contract means the same thing to a manager as it does to a player. There's not a lot of faith there. Which is strange after a 102-win season. I see. If you lose the last game of the season, nobody gives a shit. So it's on me now. No, Art, it's on me. And the kid is the new assistant GM. And what I I don't think you get from that clip is that the camera in this movie seems to focus on Philip Seymour Hoffman's face a lot after he's basically heard, hey, I know you need to do your job, but I'm not going to let you do your job, basically. And the way that he's like, hey, I need that one, I need more than a one-year contract, and then Billy Bean basically straight up walks away from him, and we don't follow Brad Pitt, we just stay on Philip Seymour Hoffman as he slowly you know, soaks in what he just was told and then slowly shuffles off down the hallway. And it's like this... This guy who's—it's almost like you—it's—it's it's that feeling like you know you're gonna get fired. You're just waiting to be fired. You know what I mean? Like it's just—it's this—you're completely at the mercy of this other guy who has this new agenda, these new rules. You're part of the old regime, and like you're just there because it's easier to have you around than fire you. Yeah, I love him saying, you know, to him that it doesn't—you didn't—you didn't win the last game of the season. Like nobody. I mean, he, he brings that up multiple times. He says that, you know, to. Uh, Jonah Hill's character as well. Just like if you don't win the last game of the season, like no, you know they're gonna discredit us. Uh, but I mean, to Art, you know, he, he's just like, what, I mean, how many games did they win the pre- previous season? Like one hundred and two. Hundred and two. Yep. So, it, yeah, it's. I mean, but that, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter to Billy. And w- what matters is just trying to find other players to fill in the shoes of those like of the three uh you know major players that they lost to what free agency right yep yeah yeah the 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 that's Gianni like went, yeah Giambi went to the Yankees Damon went to the Red Sox and Isringhausen went to the Cardinals maybe Cardinals card yeah Cardinals so like big traditional teams essentially now that yep. the Cardinals are like Cardinals are never like the highest payroll, but they're always up there, and they're always a competitive team. Best so fans in baseball. 
Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Have we, do, s- side note, do you know about the Twitter? I think it's, I don't know exactly what it is. If you just search Best Fans of Baseball Twitter, there's someone who, so the Cardinals have this reputation that they have the best, classiest fans in baseball. But this Twitter account retweets every Cardinal fan talking the most shit about everything, about like, you know, racial slurs against other players and about like, you know, <laughs> all this stuff about like, they're, they're oh, no, the pettiest, most self-centered, you know, we're the best and everybody else sucks. Like, we're doing things the right way. And like this, this one Twitter account just retweets all their terrible, terrible, like why people hate them and their fans. So... I need to follow that. That sounds awesome. It's really good. <laughs> I was I just looked this up because I, after you saying uh, how they like linger on Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I do love the way that this movie is shot and really holds on to those you know the pe- people's reactions and showing their expressions. And I mean, our main man is excellent at acting in that. But I, I wanted to look up who the cinematographer was. I'm really surprised it's uh, Wally. Uh, I think he pronounced his name last name Fister, right? The, and he's the main time like collaborator cinematographer all Christopher Nolan films. And it does not look, you know, I mean, he he has a very specific look as a director of photography especially for all Christopher Nolan films but this uh, I I really like the work that he does here I think it's a beautifully like kind of like a lot of handheld shots and you know especially when there's a lot of Billy Bean in his truck and like contemplating and uh, oh I love those scenes yeah and I think and the and the music does work. You're I such a loser really well dad. You're such a loser dad. You're such a loser dad. I know. I mean that's the that's the end and I really want to talk about that, but uh Oh no, we're gonna talk um, about that for sure. Yeah. I have things I need to talk about with that. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, um so what was the other Hoffman scene that you mentioned before that you I mean, there's all these Pena scenes. <laughs> I feel like the whole like if if you learn anything from this film, it's that like Hadaberg's got to play for a space and not Pena. These two characters just keep coming uh, to a head, and this is just another uh, Billy and Art confrontation scene. I should have made you a bigger part of the conversation from day one. That way, it'd be clear what we're trying to do here. That was my mistake. Art, and I take responsibility for that. What are you trying to say? I'm saying it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they're designed to be played. Billy? You're out of your depth. Why not Hatterberg at first? Because he can't play first. How do you know? Not my first baseball game. Oh, Scott Hatterberg can't hit it's his on defenses. So it keeps us in the plus column. We only need to be 7 over 500. What? Anything else? Yeah. I would have rather seen Bradford in the end than Magnante. Bradford's a righty. I don't care about righty-lefty. I do. Could this be about your contract? No. This is about you doing your job and me doing mine. Mine's being being left alone to manage this team you assembled for me. I didn't assemble it for you, Art. No shit. talk i'm reinvigorated by my love of the game yeah i mean this is exactly what we've been saying the whole time like this dynamic it doesn't their argument doesn't change much you know they don't argue about many different things it's 
Yeah, you can see, well, you can see why they shot that scene, but then decided to leave it out. The you know the scene you brought up, Joey, that like you want it almost to come to. I mean, you want art how for like I mean those you know because Brian's you know you saying that you thought like oh my god look at this you know manager art, you know Art Howe and what he's doing with this team like you want that moment for Billy that Art goes up to him and is like wow you actually you're doing something really special here like let's let's you know take both of our talents and really make it work like you almost you know I mean you want teamwork to come out of this <laughs> but it, <laughs> but that just doesn't it ne- that just never comes to fruition I'm also like interested in so Ron Washington Kyle is like that that coach um, who he brings actually to uh, Scott Hatterberg's home when they sign him? The first for the first base, base cut, or yeah, was, yeah, essentially. Yeah. He was in later the, in real life uh, caught doing cocaine in the dugout mid or in the clubhouse mid game. Clubhouse, he was the yes. Of the Rangers. <laughs> yes, and, nice. and guess who one was one of his coaches? Art Howe. There you go. Ooh. Scratch each other's back. But in in the movie, he he's stubborn, but he's like not like that anti-Billy in the book. No, he's like the yeah closest to being almost on Billy's. He's nice. Yeah. <laughs> in the book, he is worse than Art Howe at like this, all this money, oh, wow. all this money ball stuff. Like he doesn't believe in it at all. Like he thinks it. So like that, all that, all those lines are like ring true. when he's saying like first place is base difficult to play, you know, all that kind of stuff. But in the movie, it comes off more as like, well, Billy, you know you're the boss, so I'm gonna try it out. Like in the it, yeah. in the movie, I'm sorry. And it's also yeah, they almost go ahead, Kyle. No, I was just gonna say they almost like needed some comedic relief in a way. <laughs> like I mean, and you get that in like you know, I mean, Chris Chris Pratt is very charming in this movie. I love. Uh, the relationship, or not the relationship, but the conversation that he has between him and uh, oh god, why the David Justice. Thank you, David Justice, and just saying that you know the thing that he's most afraid of is the ball coming in his general. <laughs> yeah, I do like that. Like that's just so. I mean, you get you get that from, and then I mean again, and even I mean Jonah Hill obviously adds some comedic relief to it, but I do just love the the quick little Sorkin exchange when they go to Hatterberg's house. <laughs> oh no, that's great too. Sorry, Joey, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say that in the scene where they bring Ron Washington to Scott Hattieberg's house, I think he makes a joke about, like, the fans. He's like, well, why don't we teach one of them how to play first? Like, you know, it's it's as easy as teaching this guy who's been a career catcher to play first. Like, it's not easy to do. You know, it's a completely different reaction time and everything like that. So, But it's played in the movie like a joke. And so it's just, you know, instead of confrontation, like Brian was saying, it's like, hey, there's a, like, there's a throwaway joke. Like, it's funny. Like, look at this wacky guy with his wacky ideas. <laughs> you know you're right and i think again that's probably what pissed art how off like ev- like aside for the scouts art how again is our main antagonist if you will besides like the big bad yankees and stuff well that's like, kind of like the way that sorkin does things and i don't want to give i mean sorkin did have the final right on this i did read that he wanted to leave the original writer's name on this because when he was brought in, he thought the original script that he was rewriting was so good yeah. that yeah, he, he really liked, liked it. That he didn't want to just put his name on it because it wasn't really his. But that's kind of what Aaron Sorkin does, right? Like, I just saw Molly's Game, and Molly's Game takes this 
story of this sort of bruising, you know, this woman who ran illegal poker games and, like, had, you know, broke all these laws or whatever, and makes it into this charming vehicle where, like, look how cool Jessica Chastain is. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, he does it all the time. Like, the same thing with, like, the social network, like you were saying before. It's like these... He, he smooths the edges. He rounds mm. the edges of all these people so that, like... That's a good way it's, to Yeah, it, yeah. it's the story of what happened, but it's also a pleasing story. You're like, oh, look at that. Like, that's a good that's a good guy. I can get behind him. Yeah, that that's a great way to put it. And that's 100%. And again, if you're... I get it. If you're Art Howe and you're going to the theater to see this and you see this guy who's, like, twice your size playing you like a complete asshole, um, you're not going to be happy. But again, you, re, you know, you got to realize it's a movie, you know? <laughs> Is Phyllis Rothman wearing, like, stomach pads in this movie? Because there's no, one no, scene... We- no, this is... Okay. We've been discussing this, that, like, there was, he, yeah. there was one scene where, like, his shirt looked, like, really weirdly lumpy. Like, it didn't look like he was fat. It looked like he had something in his shirt, so I wasn't <laughs> sure. Well, he just tucked his, like, shirt. We- I don't remember that scene. No, but I don't remember where it was either. He's, like, I, I, and we'll see, like, to the end, but he is, like, at his biggest here that we've ever seen him. Like, in the last movies after this and a couple movies before this, like, wouldn't you agree, Kyle? Yeah, he's just got a good old like big old beer gut going on. Has he ever been like, bald uh, before? This is the no, this shortest is, this, this we've is seen the, his hair. Yeah, this is the total like shaved head look for him. This uh, is up there. Maybe we'll do a, again. We'll do a vote of favorite fa- facial hair. And uh, <laughs> last week we we had his least favorite uh, hairdo of uh, these wannabe dreadlocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in uh, Jack. So uh, maybe he was just really eager to shave that. Yeah, probably he was just like ah. Screw these Rasta man locks. Now, this came out the same year as our, our, our film next week, which we'll talk about later, Ides of March, but it's funny, like, he has hair in that, so they must have... Either he's wearing a wig or shot Moneyball before this, before Ides of March. Right? He has hair in that, I right? Think, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's... I don't know. It's like a, a normal, <laughs> normal enough length of hair that I don't know how fast his hair grows, so... Uh, Maybe maybe they shot Eyes of March first and then this since it's not a big role. I don't, who knows? True, true. And then you just like grew it fast. I don't know. Too much of the hair. I know they shot often. the. I know they shot the. Uh, they only had one day to shoot at Fenway, so that was all shot in one day. Yeah, which looks so. great in the film. Oh, it looks so beautiful. I fucking hate the Red so- Red Sox, but uh, and just you know, Boston general. Sorry, Boston offense. You but, keep uh, alienating like every podcast we do. You alienate one city or like one area. <laughs> <laughs> well, they shouldn't. If, if they love Hoffman, that's not you know the, the, they love Hoffman. That is not that is not the company line at Cage Club or at PSI Love Hoffman. That is just Kyle's personal opinion. Hey, yeah, just be nice. I'm not, I'm not, just be I'm nice. I'm not trying to. No, <laughs> no need to be nice. Nice. How do you feel about the Eagles, Joey? I'm not talking about the Eagles on a podcast. So, like, I'm not going out of my way to insult entire cities and fan bases. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were you gonna? It's a sports. It's a, it's a sports movie. But you were gonna. Sports. You were going to compliment something. It sounded like. Oh yeah, no, and, and it looks at. I've I've never been in the in the stadium, but they just shot it beautifully, and I lo- I love the way it looks. And Boston is a really fun city. It's one of those cities that I wanted to go to and wanted to hate like Dallas, but I go there and I have a great time, and they have a beautiful. But you know, when he says he's just like you know, the Coliseum's one thing, but I'll take this. Like it's so true. Like I I hate the Yankees for them tearing down the old. Wait, old why do you hate team. Dallas? What did Dallas do to you? Because I'm a New York Giants fan. Oh, so you hate the city because of the Cowboys? 
No, 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 no. He was saying he wanted to hate Dallas, like he wanted to hate Boston as a city. But right, when but he, he went to Dallas, Dallas, he actually I, maybe I missed. No, he likes it. He he oh, he likes it. He just Dallas. he wanted to hate it. He wanted to go there. And I wanted to go there, and I wanted to come back and be like, ugh, didn't have any fun. Oh. <laughs> like you know, but I went there, and I and I had a blast. It's a really. I went like I, I I didn't go there. I did a road trip once, and people were just like, yeah, you know, Dallas isn't isn't that great of a city. So I went to like Austin, San Antonio, and while I mean, yeah, San Antonio's okay. I mean, historically, it's a cool city, but uh, Austin's like a really you know fun. Artsy, great we'll music city. Years, but, I know all about it. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. I'm preaching to the fucking but, choir. No, but I mean, uh, the, the the Cowboys' new stadium is gaudy and wonderful, and Fenway is beautiful inside. Like I've been in there. I've gone, I've seen two games there, and it's 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 great. Like it's it's got character that isn't. And I agree. I mean, I don't hate the Yankees for tearing down Yankee Stadium, but the new stadium is so boring. Like it's like not that City oh, yeah. Field is much better, but City Field is at least a little but bit. It's cooler. Yeah. It's cool, yeah. Well, same thing with your. I mean, the Viking Stadium. Uh, Brian, didn't you just post an article about? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not trying not to make it into. I'm not, I'm not trying to like rub anything any like anyway with the with them losing. But that's the the Viking Stadium is like a beautiful, cool looking new stadium. And you look at what the fucking Jets and the Giants did, and then you look at what they did down in Dallas. And sure, you can start talking about labor costs and you know, but still, you, you, <laughs> all that stuff. They could have. Mo- they could have money balled the. Than- Construction, you know, yeah, Fa- it's just found so, ways around and, and, their limitations. MetLife is just a piss poor excuse for a stadium. It's not exciting, and that Viking Stadium I've been to, I was at the home opener for the first game, and that was a gorgeous stadium. The Metrodome was a dump, so they really upgraded there. You can have beautiful new stadiums, or you can build something that's boring, like the the Jets and Giants did, or the Yankees did. Like, you know, but like the crazy thing is, they're still even if it's a boring stadium, it still costs two billion dollars. Like, I, I don't know where the money goes. Yeah, but like they're it's not into art, I guess. But you know, union fees. No, not it's not. It's not that it's cheap. It back to this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that Yankee Stadium is cheap. It just it doesn't have the character that it, it should. It's like it's like a museum or an airport. Like same with MetLife, and but that's why. Fenway, it's like that's real romantic baseball for Billy. So when he's in there, it's 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 almost could be a dream come true. But of course, again, and we'll get to that ending. Of course, you know, I do want to talk about that ending. But the Coliseum is a great location for this film because that is like the dumpiest. Because I've I've been in the Coliseum. It's it's not good. Like I was I was in the front row in the foul like you know sort of the second deck in the foul territory. And there's like a six foot walkway between you and the railing. Like it's like what like I I'm in the front row, but like I'm still not like in a good spot. Like it's just it's poorly designed. Parking is ridiculously expensive. There's nothing good about that at all. It's not a great stadium. And that's I mean they don't talk about the San Francisco Giants a lot or San Francisco. But I mean, you see it obviously in the film a little bit. But it's like their ballpark is is one of the beauties, and it, Oakland is just—they're the underdog. No matter, I mean, since like McGuire and Canseco, after that era, they're always going to be the underdog until it's been I guess downhill the since that earthquake. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so it was there is there is a couple other Hoffman. Uh, Scenes, obviously. Is there another one that you want to share a clip, or do you want to just pull to the ending? No, I mean, the, the, honestly, like when watching it, the, it's not like they're. I I feel he, like mo- he really he really doesn't. Yeah, I feel much. like most of what his performances in this movie is just like these sullen silences, just yeah. staring at Billy Bean. Like, I can't believe you're making me do this. Like, it doesn't translate well to audio. He's also on screen, probably like 
eight minutes, maybe the entire time. Like yeah, it's a very probably. What is unique, probably, although I've not seen every movie, is that there is a lot of Philip Seymour Hoffman on TVs in this movie. Like there's game footage of him coming out of the dugout, you know, calling on the relievers, arm calling the bullpen. Uh, so that was yeah. kind of a cool, sort of unique. Like, oh look, there's our guy. And I th- I think that is goes to what I was saying before, like where no matter what, especially this era. Art Howe is the face of this winning streak, not Billy Bean. And speaking of faces, though, like Hoffman in this film, he, he, he like you said, he has such great faces. But one of them that's my favorite is not actually his, him being pissed off. It's his reaction to that Hatterberg home run at the end of that winning oh, streak. Oh, yeah. Like, like his... That, that whole game 20 is just one of the most excruciating scenes like sequences to watch in I think like any film it just makes me so like unnerved just to like that level and I love I mean it was it's there's so many lines in this movie uh and like shots that just they utilized well when uh watch uh when like I watched the trailer for it and it just like it does make like a very like a allows itself to be used as a really great trailer. So yeah, this is to me like an all-time great trailer. I got so excited when I saw this trailer. (laughs) Because, again, I was a little worried. It was like, you know, uh, Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man, or or whenever the director leaves, you're a little worried. And then, you know, it was such a refreshing trailer. But anyway, sorry, you just reminded me of it, Kyle, so... Yeah, I mean, so that whole sequence, I mean, and then that expression on... Philip Seymour Hoffman's face when like because to to me I mean it is a sport that can be romanticized and one of my like all time you know when people are just like like their all time favorite like smells or sounds like one of my all time favorite you know people are like oh I love the smell of coffee uh, one of my all time favorite sounds is just hearing a baseball bat and a the ball crack of the bat yeah, it's just a fantastic sound that just it's just it's success in a sound. That's like what, and uh and he they hear that and they are not, you know, Billy too, like he's sullen and he's got his, you know, head between his arms like not paying attention to the game, just all incredibly depressed cuz they lost this what 11 run lead and then he hears that sound and they just know that sound means a home run and it's just great that it was this you know the character of Hedeberg as well who you know again they focus on like I mean him and Justice uh, and uh, what's the uh, pitcher's name uh, Chad Bradford. Bradford yeah Chad Bradford a former like, man those are those <laughs> are the uh, three characters that I think and then you know Giambi a little bit before he gets traded uh, that they focus on the most so it's great that it's like Hedeberg's you know hit too. Yeah, Scott Hatterberg, like, again, Chris Pratt is, like, awesome in this role. You know, Chris Pratt reminds me, and their careers went in completely different ways, especially after, uh, especially after Guardians of the Galaxy. But Chris Pratt in this role reminds me of a role that Philip Seymour Hoffman might have played when he was younger, if that makes sense. Like the kind of comic relief baseball player, or... Yeah. You know, like, 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 he, like in Twister or something like that. It, it's, it's, uh, Again, like I said, Chris Pratt's career definitely went in a different way, but it's it's he, he he's all even his face too. Like when he's got a great like he's got great reactions too in this film. Yeah, can I tell you? I just really enjoyed reading uh, his story of getting on to this film, which is that he 
auditioned and they said that he was too uh, heavy for the role. And so he kept, he started working out and kept calling his agent who was contacting, I guess, the casting director or maybe the director, Ben Miller himself, who knows, uh, and saying like is is has the role been taken yet and it hasn't and he kept working out and he finally got into this shape that he took a picture and sent it to him and they said okay like you work for the role and i just kind of i think it's like a little ironic or i like the juxtaposition to this world of baseball that they're creating and showing of these the old world of judging these guys like face value <laughs> and so i was just kind of no that's that's right that. it's kind of like kind of like acting you know but i guess acting yeah exactly is it's very it's just that. the shallow world of entertainment uh, <laughs> and i guess they, they yeah. allude to it too when they was like who are we looking for fabio that like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah uh so i know kyle i did i know you did want to talk about uh that last i guess pickup truck scene Yes. Yeah. I I love this scene. Um, <laughs> I love you know. Well, what do you? Th- I guess what do you think of his daughter and that whole angle uh, fr- from step one? I know you mentioned the Spike Jones thing, Cul- culminating I guess at, on this like mixtape scene. Yeah, I mean he's got a. I, I love the relationship that Billy has with his daughter, and you know he just again is someone that decided to go play. You know in the major leagues instead of taking you know full ride to Stanford and uh and you know so he just sees just wants his daughter to have every opportunity that he didn't end up getting to have and so I think he sees that she's good at uh singing and playing guitar and you know just wants to you know make her feel good about that and so she records this song that this was the one what, what what did we cover oh we covered the the pirate radio where they had a lot of songs that were after the uh the time the movie came out and that was one thing that this song was written in like 2008 and yeah this girl and this sings is, it yeah uh, the, the show by lenka is the name of this it's like a popular song i just i I never remember like who does the song, and every time I've Googled it, I always find it funny. Like one of the top Google searches is, "Did Billy Bean's daughter write the show song?" <laughs> like people actually, like, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's after, uh, yeah, written, but it's also not a film about music, so I don't really no. like care that Be- much. It just before they found out she could sing, it was originally supposed to be "Against the Wind" by Bob Seger. Her just playing. Oh, not just her playing. Singing. Just playing. Just it playing. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, nothing. Ex- nothing expresses a solemn moment like a Bob Seger song. So, Joey, do you have any opinions on this music- final musical number? I like the song. I like the song a lot. You know, she's a great singer. I'm sad that that girl hasn't gone on to do much more. I mean, what she, I saw like I, she's on that. What's the? I always forget. I've said it before on this podcast. What's the Leaf Schreiber show on Ray Donovan? Show? Yeah, so yeah. She, and that's just still on, on. I think right. Yeah, she's the daughter in that. Um, she's very annoying on that show. But I, but I, I do I, like the character, I mean, not her. Is <laughs> but I do like that. You know, in this movie, that's basically a character study. Ends with this quiet moment, just him and his daughter, and his daughter's not even there. Then I'm like, oh right, like that's just how it ends. Like it just cuts to the you know deciding in that moment, listening to his daughter saying, "I'm not going to take that job." So yeah, I think it's a really sort of beautiful ending for a movie that's about the A's and about Moneyball, but more specifically just about Billy Bean. Oh yeah, no, I love it. Like that beautiful, and it's just tragic. It just makes me go like I don't know. I want to scream at him every time I see that. What? Like, <laughs> why is it at the end? Oh, that I was like, uh, uh, why is it tragic? He chose his family. 
No, exactly. No, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I mean, she was really no, and she. I mean, she's nervous throughout the film, like you know, like oh, are you gonna have to move? And so yeah, of course, it's better that he, for her, you know, their relationship that he stays over there. But and Billy just what he could still have, with him, just what yeah. he. Yeah, what, but what he obviously just could have done. I mean, who know? I mean, I'm assuming the Red Sox still would have won a couple years later, but who knows? So much knows? had to go. I think they would have. I think they would have still won a World Series in recent years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he would have screwed it up enough. But who knows? Who knows? You know, like we don't know. But they yeah. certainly like. He, like he said, they hire Bill James, and he gets. He was super excited about that. So was there anything else you guys want to mention in Moneyball? Um, I, I could talk about baseball forever, but I don't think people tune into P.S. I Love Hoffman for a baseball podcast, <laughs> unfortunately. The one thing I do want to say is that Bennett Miller, I think, from what I've seen, directed three movies of note, two of them Hoffman movies, and then he will go on to do Foxcatcher, shout out Magic Mike's, which we will get to that in years down the line, a movie that I don't like very much. Um, no, I don't but, like it either. But yeah, I mean, this is such a beautiful, good movie, and I didn't see Capote, I still haven't seen Capote, but like... It's got such a different, like, uplifting vibe as opposed to... Like, this movie sort of gets, like, in a weird way, like, happier as it goes on, as opposed to Foxcatcher, which, like, gets real dark in a hurry. <laughs> um, so it's kind of the, the opposite of that. But uh, Bennett Miller, in my hearts and in the in the hearts of this podcast network, all three of his big films will have entries on cageglove.me by, I don't know, 2020 or something? Who knows? <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, no, definitely he'll probably have another films- one by then. Yeah, all, all of his films, I mean, they're all, I mean, based off of real life, you know, people, but they all are just, you know, men that have these, I mean, big, like, big, like, again, so I, I won't call Moneyball, I mean, it's definitely not on the level of a Truman Capote or, uh, uh, I'm totally blanking on the name of the guy, both characters, it's, I know it's DuPont, but then I forget Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo's last name in, uh, in Foxcatcher. But uh, but you know they're just very, tor- tor- like kind of like, haunted just ha- haunted individuals. Like you know Billy Bean is haunted by his past, and Capote never is the same after uh, writing In Cold Blood, and then just I mean it's the whole thing of Foxcatcher. While it's not a good movie, it is a really interesting story. Well, I, we always I guess wrongfully assume that people have listened to previous episodes. Um. If you are a returning P.S. I Love Hoffman Hoff fan, thank you. But um, if you did not listen to Capote, we kind of dove more into Bennett Miller's relationship with uh, Philip Summer Hoffman. So just a recap. Yeah, they have a really, they have a really interesting... Yeah, yeah they, they they went to summer camp together as kids, along with... Um, why, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, yeah, it's that actor... From the Birdcage. From the Birdcage. From the, yeah, from the Birdcage, <laughs> one of our favorite films. <laughs> uh, Dan Futterman, Dan Futterman. And the three of them, I think, went to NYU together. They always wanted to do films together. Um, so, like, they have a close personal connection. I, I would think probably... Um, you know, like, like again, they're childhood friends. So, like, we kind of asked the question before, but I forgot about that. So now I'm like convinced that it was Bennett Miller who brought Philip Summer Hoffman on. Yeah, definitely. Yep. So, so uh, anything else for Moneyball or? It's a movie that I will always watch when it's on TV. I mean, I I own it, but it's a movie that uh, you know, if I'm changing the channels, I'll. You know, I'll watch it from whatever point I catch it, and I, I, you know, definitely I recommend it to anybody. Yeah, the, the Oakland A's are like I don't have another baseball team because that's wrong. 
But if I were to have an, <laughs> an American League team, they'd probably be my American League team, probably from like the book and the movie. And and uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. I I I, I, lo- I love this movie. <laughs> yeah, and they're still doing the same thing. They're still the same old lovable A's who you know are not very good. God, I, again, I would. Lo- I guess I want to see the Mets win a World Series more than anything, and especially the A's actually beat the Mets in a World Series once, but I was not alive. Um, <laughs> but I would love, like, after the Mets win the World Series, I would love to see Billy Bean win a World Series. That would be, that w- even though it might be less poetic, maybe maybe it's better of a story if he never wins one. I don't care. I want to see Billy Bean. Uh, he he's been validated by other people. I want him to validate himself. I'm sure it eats at him, you know. But they are, at best, the third-best team in that division, if not worse. I mean, you got the Angels now, and you got the Astros, obviously. Um, actually, they might be the, they're probably the worst team in that division. I think the Mariners got a lot better, and the Rangers are probably better. So, may, better luck next year, Oakland. Yeah, I don't think next year's going to be their year, but you know what? That's what a lot of people said in, the, in this Moneyball year. Maybe by the time we get to Foxcatcher, Oakland will be good again. Make <laughs> Oakland great again. Yes. <laughs> Moga. M- Moga, yeah, I was trying to spell that out, too. Um, well, thanks again, Joey, for coming on. Um, yeah, thanks, Joey. If you can remind uh, everyone where they can follow you or what podcast or anything new you want to plug. Uh. Yes. So this comes out next week. So yesterday, the first episode of The Contenders came out, which is shining a light on the unruly women of cinema. It's a bi-weekly podcast that follows or that watches and talks about movies either made by or starring women who refuse to play by the rules. So yesterday's movie was The Contender from 2000. Uh, two weeks from yesterday will be the episode I'm on, which is Wonder Woman, which is very exciting. Um, next month, we have two new podcasts starting. Um, neither has really been... Well, actually, no. So, okay. So this is going to be the podcast debut, but it's going to be announced on the on cageweb.me last week. We have a Winona Ryder podcast coming to the network. Oh, so that's, a, that's official. That's official. Yes. So she that is coming out. I think the first episode as of now is going to be March 7th. And who's on that? Uh, Mike, uh, what's that? Who's on that one? Uh, Lindsay Gibb, who wrote a book about Nicolas Cage, who, when she wrote this book, the AV Club wrote about it, and I tweeted at her, and I was like, hey, do you want to be on our Nicolas Cage podcast? She's like, yeah, absolutely. So she yeah, did a bunch great. of those. She did a bunch of Keanu. She loves Keanu now. Uh, you know, she's going to be on a couple Charlies, and she's like, hey, I have a friend who loves Winona. I want to do a Winona podcast. I'm like, cool, down, yes. So Winona Forever is next month. Mike Manzi's Third Times a Charm starts next month on March 3rd, every third of the month from there on out, maybe forever. <laughs> um, and then there's another new podcast that was going to come out this month that is going to be bumped to next month, which as of yet has not been officially announced. I'm going to hold off, but it's a little bit of a departure from the movie-centric thing that we've sort of gotten into. So it's a little bit, it's still about pop culture, it's still about nostalgia, but it's a little bit different. So, so how many uh, podcasts is the network up to now? Um, with all those 16, 17, maybe? Jeez. A- active? I, uh, well, I mean, uh, there, there's only two that are really dead. Monkey Club is dead, and all his movies is dead. Okay, like, so... Uh, Cage sorry. and Keanu and Zac Efron are in hibernation, basically? Yeah, I mean, those... Yeah, for those, you guys don't... But they're still active. I mean, Cage Club is definitely active as we do Revisited, but, like, whenever any of those actors put out a new movie, we'll still do that. So, active-wise, sure. there's... Including those 10 to 12, maybe? So how many... I'll ask this question. How many come out a week? 
Well, now what's exciting is that once March rolls around, uh, we will have new podcasts every weekday. So we've got Cinemakers on Mondays. We've got The Contenders every other Tuesday, alternating with the other podcast that I have not announced yet. On Wednesdays, we've got you. And then Winona Wednesdays is also going to be on Wednesdays. Uh, so that's going to be every other Wednesday. Thursday, Wistful Thinking comes out and it alternates with Cage Club Revisited. Friday is Watch the Throne. Um, we have now and again on the 1st and the 15th of the month. We have Too Fast, Too River on the 1st of the month. We've got Magic Mike's on the 11th of the month. We've got Boyfriend Material on the 21st of the month. Uh, what else am I missing? Am I missing anything else? Mike Manzi's on the third of the month, every month. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely Monday through Friday. And then, you know, depending on when the first 11th, 21st, third or 15th, I guess, you know, depending on what day of the week those fall on, there's a uh, bonus ones there too. So, well, content, 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 a lot of Sling stuff in to that ch- tent. check out. Sling yes. in that tent. <laughs> A lot of stuff to check out on cageclub.me. Yeah, cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, and at cageclubpod on Twitter. That's where we send everything out about everything that's going on. I think now that Facebook is clamping down on people and really sort of forcing you to pay, as I'm sure you guys might have noticed, that if you don't pay to promote a post, basically nobody sees it. Uh, Twitter is sort of where you can most easily find it aside from our website so and there's also one other thing that i don't i don't plug enough on our shows if you want to never miss a show even if you don't listen to them if you you just want to know what's coming out on cageclub.me in the right hand column or on the bottom on mobile there is a box where you can sign up for an automated newsletter that every morning if there's a new post on the site you get an email that says hey here's what it is and you can click on it and go right to the link on the page so if you never want to miss a thing uh you know just like that Aerosmith song uh <laughs> on cageclub.me that's exactly what I was thinking of well yeah. thank thanks Joey for coming on um what do we have next week Kyle we have the Ides of March. Oh, yeah. No. Shut up, boyfriend material. Yeah, of course. Yep. Ryan Gosling. Daddy Goss. Daddy Goss. <laughs> well, again, thanks, Joey. Thank you, guys. Yes. And you. now that I have completed my contractual obligations, you are officially canceled. <laughs> oh. Just kidding. Oh. Actually, in exciting news, this is episode 52, I think. 51? No, 52. 51. 51. 51. Damn. I thought I was on the one-year anniversary. I'm not. Your one-year anniversary actually is March 1st. March so that 1st. Was the, that was yeah. the first episode, so you know, yep. a month from today as we're recording it, so you guys are almost one. Happy birthday. Um, and the Thank gift you. that you're giving the world is, I guess, hey, we're out of movies, basically, so what a, what a birthday <laughs> gift. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To but, come up with something new to talk about. Yes, we so You guys will. are the if most prolific us. and most regular... Uh, podcast that Mike and I have not done together. Eventually, Too Fast, Too Forever will overtake all of us, but uh, as of right <laughs> of now, you know, aside from Cage and Keanu, you guys are the most prolific in terms of, you know, you're the only other one to hit 50, so congratulations, guys. And you've never missed if, a week, which is very important. Very important. It, don't jinx it. No. <laughs> if you... <laughs> yeah, don't Billy Bean it. Yeah. If you... This is a really quick question. If you want to take a break on Too Fast, Too Forever, do you get Tyrese to replace you? Or, oh, God, I hope so. That'd be cool. Well, we, we do have a closing line, Joey, if you'd like to give it. I, you know, I've never said it. Really? Wow. I had, we, you didn't have it the first time I was on, and then I deferred to Mike the second time I was on. Ah. I, didn't, I did not even realize that. So this is, a, yeah. this is the, your maiden voyage on saying this. 
and it might be my farewell voyage. Like, this is my Titanic. The maiden <laughs> and the farewell. I'm going to defer again to Mike when we're on for the last episode. Spoiler but, spoil Spoiler for Titanic. Spoiler for Titanic. <laughs> stay uncool. Thank you, Joey. You stay uncool as well. <laughs> Thank you.